Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums podcast series featuring talks from uh, Middle East Forums projects. Um, I am Cliff Smith of the Middle East Forums Washington Project and I'll be moderating this discussion today. Uh, the format of this webinar and podcast will be a 15 minute interview followed by 15 minutes of question and answer from the audience. If you want to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type a question. Um, and now I am, for, I am pleased to introduce our guest, Seth Oldmixon. Seth is a former Peace Corps volunteer in Bangladesh and the founder, founder of Liberty South Asia. Um, he is an expert on the region and he is here to discuss the Middle East and South Asia come together. As the name suggests, the Middle East Forum, um, we at the Middle East Forum are predominantly concerned with the Middle East. However, um, the world is increasingly interconnected and in a world where relationships between countries far outside the Middle East have a large impact on what happens um, within the Middle East and with those that are interacting with the Middle East. Um, this has always been the case, but it is increasingly so, and it is even more true today now than it was even very recently. And the connections and um, relationships with state actors, non-state actors, many others are growing daily and the importance of them are growing daily. Uh, moreover, the problems in the Middle East, um, such as the ideological contagion of radical Islam, knows no bounds. Um, what is in the Middle East does not stay in the Middle East, and what is in South Asia does not stay in South Asia, and vice versa. Um, I'll get started by asking a few questions, um, just as I said, and then go to the audience questions, so just you can start typing them whenever you'd like. In the meantime, Seth, let's start with the big issue here. The collaboration between India and Israel is increasingly public. Um, for just a few examples, um, Prime Minister Modi became the first Indian Prime Minister to visit Israel. Um, the Islamist foes of Israel um, and India are increasingly openly working together, and they are increasingly large um, trade partners as well. Um, so basically, big picture question, how have we gotten here? What is the future of this relationship? What are potential pitfalls that we might want to look at? Thanks, Cliff, and uh, thanks for having me today. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, things don't stay um, within, within borders or regions um, as we would like them to. And I think that the relationship between India and Israel is um, one that really demonstrates that. Um, look, Israel is a Middle Eastern democracy um, and it has, you know, been uh, threatened by violent extremist groups in the region, uh, Islamist groups in particular, uh, for a long time. India uh, is um, not only you know, the largest democracy in South Asia, um, it is you know, really the largest democracy in the world. And India too has also uh, suffered from attacks by uh, violent extremist Islamist groups um, in the region. And quite often these groups do um, collaborate um, there have been instances um, of collaboration, information personnel sharing between uh, radical extremist groups like uh, Jamaat Dawa, uh, also known as Lashkar-e Taiba, that uh, has been responsible for some really uh, horrible terrorist attacks in India, uh, collaborating with uh, radical Islamist groups um, in in uh, uh, Palestine. So, you know, we see these radical groups don't recognize borders um, and, you know, India and Israel, um, both as uh, democracies, um, you know, have a shared interest in uh, protecting 
um, themselves, but also in uh, defeating this um, violent extremist ideology that, that sees no borders. You mentioned trade, they have been large trade partners. Um, India has um, also been a, um, you know, they have a major um, trade in, in uh, security and in arms um, between, I believe, 2015 to 2019, um, India uh, made up something like 45% of um, uh, Israeli military hardware um, procurement. So, um, and that's, you know, that's the sort of the public side of things. There's also certainly um, intelligence sharing and intelligence cooperation working against these shared groups. Now pitfalls, um, you know, one of the, I think, real challenges here is that they feed, um, you know, this, this cooperation as important as it is, can feed the uh, radical uh, propaganda, the conspiracy theories. So one of the things we hear in South Asia um, among the extremist um, talking points is a reference to uh, Hindu Zionists um, and you know, really trying to play up this, this um, India-Israeli nexus from, a, from the perspective of a, a, a radical um, uh, you know, extremist ideological conspiracy. Um, and in fact, um, you know, this has um, impacts outside of, of India uh, as well. We saw earlier this year where uh, Bangladesh, um, another uh, South Asian democracy, one that has, um, was um, founded as a secular state and uh, has, you know, since founding in 1971 really struggled against um, attempts to uh, turn it into a theocratic state. Um, we saw the current government earlier this year uh, removed um, the uh, reference in the Bangladeshi passport to um, not allowing travel to Israel. And there was, there was quickly a, a large um, outcry, particularly among um, you know, far right and radical Islamist groups suggesting that, you know, this was some sort of conspiracy, that this was some sort of, um, you know, the, the government of Bangladesh um, being controlled by Western powers or something like that. It's all utterly ridiculous, but you see how this can feed into these extremist narratives that they use for recruitment. Yeah, I, I did, you make a good point. And beyond that, one thing that's interesting is I've noticed actually some of these same um, radical Islamist actors that you're talking about are actually also specifically in public going after both India and Israel for the arms trade that you mentioned and trying to make this into some grand conspiracy. Of course, of course. Which is just interesting. I mean, there's been quite a few articles written in um, Qatari propaganda, Turkish propaganda, pa Pakistani propaganda. Um, and that actually leads me to my next question, which is another big issue is the increasingly close relationship between Turkey and Pakistan. Um, of course, these countries have a historic relationship, it's not new, but Erdogan, uh, I would say, has increasingly been looking to non-Muslim majority, non-Arab Muslim majority countries, that is, as the Arab world has drifted away from his direction and his way of looking at things to sort of set him up as a world leader. And they are increasingly thus, um, along, Pakistan and Turkey are increasingly collaborating on economics and even in conflict areas with non-Arab Muslim majority countries, Pakistan chief among them, 
Uh, just recently, Turkey and Pakistan signed a protocol to improve interparliamentary ties and conflict areas such as Cyprus, Kashmir, and the Israel-Palestine dispute were specifically mentioned as areas where they may collaborate. Um, where do you think this is going? Um, and what do you think each of these countries are trying to get out of their relationship with each other? Sure. Well, I, you know, so I think that Turkey and Pakistan are very interesting to talk to uh, talk about, um, uh, especially together. You know, um, here you have two countries um, that sort of come from this these sort of parallel traditions that were um, uh, nominally secular. You have, um, you know, Ataturk's secular approach to um, society in Turkey and uh, the founding father of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, um, you know, despite Pakistan being established as um, a, a, a Muslim country, um, it's sort of complicated with the two nation theory, um, but, but Muhammad Ali Jinnah in his early um, speeches was, was uh, explicitly secular um, in his thinking. Um, and what you've seen um, in both countries, especially um, recently, but you know, certainly in Pakistan quite quickly, it was a, a reversion to this idea of uh, a society and a state that is um, based in a, a religious identity and one that tends to become, um, you know, more extreme. So, you know, where you have uh, these two leaders in both countries, Imran Khan in Pakistan and um, Erdogan in Turkey, they both have a vision of their societies and of the future that is largely defined by, um, a, a, a very theocratic, um, a very um, religiously defined, um, radically religiously defined um, social and political identity. And there's something that, you know, there, there are um, in, in Pakistan, especially among radical uh, Islamist uh, extremist groups, violent extremist groups, there is uh, something that, you know, folks may have, have heard some talk about, but this uh, prophecy uh, known as Ghazwai Hind. And it's the idea that the uh, Islamist groups are going to um, rise up and uh, conquer all of, of India, um, really all of South Asia. Um, and, you know, there's behind this idea is this, again, transnational, transregional idea of um, the rise of an Islamic caliphate, an Islamic theocracy um, that is, is transnational. Um, and I think that, you know, in Turkey, um, especially, um, you know, you can see there's, there's a book that I want to recommend um, if you haven't read it. It's by um, Tamim Ansari. And the title of the book is Destiny Disrupted. And what it looks at is the, the decline of um, of the uh, Ottoman Empire and the, the last caliphate. And this idea um, that is prevalent among some that um, that was an anomaly in history and that the caliphate is gonna rise again. Um, and you know, I think that there are um, parallels in that sort of prophetic um, future of a, an Islamic global caliphate that can be found in the political thinking um, between Pakistan and Turkey. And so they have you know, that in common. Yeah. Um, on the topic of, um, um, of that, um, we are witnessing before our eyes the complete withdrawal of the US forces from Afghanistan. And there's a lot of people wondering what's gonna come next. 
Um, this is true both for Afghanistan, but also what the US retreat will mean for the wider region. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that what happens in Afghanistan matters to the Middle East. One only needs to think about Osama bin Laden and 9-11 to make that painfully obvious. So how do you think that'll affect um, both South Asia and the Middle East? Um, and how do you think that will affect those who subscribe sort of a radical ideology, be that you know political Islamists, jihadist groups, some combination of the two, so on and so forth? Well, I think that we're already seeing some of that. We're already seeing um, a lot of these uh, radical Islamist groups um, pointing to this, um, as they have been for years, as a, uh, a proof of this, this prophetic vision of the return of this sort of global Islamic caliphate. Um, it's been very encouraging uh, to, you know, let's just be honest, it's been very encouraging to uh, violent extremist groups because they see this as, um, you know, a demonstration of this sort of ragtag band of uh, Islamic jihadi fighters um, being able to defeat, um, you know, not just the world's, but, you know, arguably, you know, um, history's um, most powerful um, uh, force. And, and they see that as, as proof of, of their mission and proof that, that they will succeed. So I think it's going to continue to be encouraging. Um, I'll you know, recommend a, a recent article in Foreign Affairs by um, Pakistan's former ambassador Hussein Haqqani, who is now at the Hudson Institute, where he talks about, um, with Pakistan in particular, but I think it, you know, the, the lessons are, can be extrapolated far beyond of the, um, the consequences, the blowback um, for the region uh, that is, is very likely to come from this, uh, this rapid withdrawal. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one who, I'll tell you, Cliff, um, I, I think that there may be a slight overstatement of um, the uh, US withdrawal from the region. Certainly ground forces are being withdrawn. Um, I, I would think, I would certainly hope that uh, the United States is not completely, you know, just walking away from the area. Sure. I think that that would yeah, be- Yeah, no, I, 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 I intended to say withdrawal from Afghanistan, the troops. I should have said Afghanistan for region. That was- uh, Well, sure, no, that, but, but, you know, to that point, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, Pakistan certainly has, um, you know, facilitated the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, you know, that's demonstrated by the leadership living there. Um, you know, sort of passing rather freely over the border. Um, the, uh, you know, once, once the Taliban, you know, uh, if they are successful in um, taking power again, you know, you're already seeing uh, groups uh, in Pakistan, uh, violent extremist groups like Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban that has been uh, violently against the Pakistani state and the Pakistani military, um, looking at this as uh, as a victory for them as well. So I think we're going to see this um, uh, this lesson taken throughout the region. Uh, we've already kind of covered this, but another thing I wanted to ask about was sort of a little bit more specific of the same basic topic. I mean, last year I wrote an article called We Are All Hamas, which talked about the very open and somewhat direct collaboration between groups like Jamaati Islami, in Pakistan and the wider South Asian region and Hamas, they were openly touting each other's causes, sending each other money, things like that. 
um, there's a lot more of this kind of common cause between radical groups, terrorist groups in both the Middle East and South Asia, um, particularly as the winds have shifted in South Asia. Um, how do you think this will matter in terms of what they, in other words, what I'm trying to say, Saudi Arabia, for example, is cracking down on the Brotherhood. So is Egypt. They are not nearly as, some of these Islamist groups are not really well accepted. In South Asia, particularly in like Pakistan, it's much different. How do you think that will affect things going forward? Absolutely. So, you know, in, in Pakistan, um, there is this idea of Afghanistan, uh, the need to have a, a um, uh, Pakistani puppet or a, a very friendly Pakistani regime in Afghanistan um, in order to provide what is known as strategic depth in their sort of this, this ongoing forever war against India that they um, feel that they're fighting. And uh, you know, the strategic depth comes from the fact that, that um, Pakistan is, is not very large geographically. And so it gives uh, Afghanistan having uh, you know, at least a proxy control over Afghanistan gives Pakistan the ability to strategically retreat, regroup. Um, uh, it gives them you know, uh, access to um, logistics and hardware and things through uh, other channels that they can then use, um, you know, should they need to in their forever war against India. Um, similarly, uh, we've seen in the past where you mentioned Osama bin Laden earlier. Osama bin Laden's not South Asian. Um, he's certainly, he was not Afghan, but he had set up uh, his camp, Al-Qaeda, the base in Afghanistan. And the reason why is that it provided a friendly um, environment where they could carry out their training and logistics um, activities, their planning, uh, if not with explicit support, certainly without any hindrance. Um, and as we see, um, you know, countries in the Middle East cracking down on violent extremist groups and Afghanistan um, under Taliban control is very likely to revert to that. It's very likely to revert to a place where radical, violent extremist Islamist groups um, throughout the Middle East are able to uh, regroup and come together, um, you know, to prepare for the next phase. We have to, you know, always remember these groups are not fighting a war that's been going on for 20 years. They're fighting a war that, it, you know, to them has been going on for over a thousand. Uh we're running a little bit behind here, but let me ask one last question before we get to, to uh, the audience questions. Um, but audience, you can start, please to start typing in questions. Um, another thing the Middle East Forum pays attention to is Islamist groups in the West. Um, mm. They're unquestionably quite open proxies of South Asian radicals. The Islamic Circle of North America is an open, obvious, and admitted um, proxy for Jamaat-e Islami. They are also increasingly making um, um, common cause with Muslim Brotherhood organizations that have the roots in the Middle East, in the West. Um, I don't wonder if you want to comment on the nature of some of these groups and if there are any such groups that are being overlooked in terms of how they are affecting um, uh, America's politics and the world. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, the two that, uh, as we've been saying this whole time, you know, you, you see these, these ideologies and these groups are able to easily, you know, uh, traverse um, state boundaries, regional boundaries, the West, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, the EU, 
you know, none of us are have impenetrable barriers to this. Um, and in fact, in recent years, certainly we've seen um, this come to fruition, um, both in terms of you know, radical uh, Islamist attacks um, in Western countries carried out by people um, who have you know, had relationships, um, sometimes gone, uh, traveled to the Middle East or South Asia for training um, and indoctrination, and then coming back and carrying out attacks. Um, and, and, you know, so some of these are, are very well known. You know, we all know about, um, we've heard about um, individuals having ties with Al-Qaeda and having individuals having ties with, with um, ISIS. But there are, uh, you know, like, as you mentioned, other organizations, Jamaat Islami is often uh, talked about as um, an on-ramp for these organizations. There are two in particular that are often overlooked that I want to point out, one being uh, the Khatmi Nubuat, um, which is a, a very violent, um, radical Islamist uh, movement, um, largely in South Asia, largely out of Pakistan, um, uh, that targets um, Ahmadi Muslims um, and, and murders them. Um, and then there's another one known as Hizbut Tahrir. Um, Hizbut Tahrir um, operates, uh, it, kind of ironically, Hizbut Tahrir has actually been banned in a lot of Middle Eastern and South Asian countries as a uh, violent um, extremist terrorist organization, but they still continue to operate rather freely in the United States and the United Kingdom. And so you will see them carrying out, um, you know, demonstrations with, you know, big, uh, black flags and, you know, demands to, you know, um, uh, behead um, people and uh, establish a global caliphate. Again, this is all part of this, this shared prophetic vision of, um, of a global caliphate. But Khatme Nubuat are, are, they import people, um, uh, evangelizers uh, for these ideologies. Khatme Nubuat brings them in from Pakistan and holds um, uh, meetings and conventions here in the United States um, and in the United Kingdom. And they have the, those have resulted in violence. Serious thing to think about. Uh, to the audience questions. Um, um, Dennis was wondering how um, Pakistan and Turkey's alliance, um, or I, not perhaps alliance is the right door, but uh, relationship with Iran, um, what that is, and then how will China who is increasingly close to Pakistan sort of navigate um, those relationships they have with each other? Those are two great questions. So Iran is, um, Iran is an interesting one because Iran is um, kind of the odd man out uh, in the region um, because Iran is Shia. Um, and while, um, you know, there are certainly um, overlaps between um, you know, the, a, a shared vision of, um, you know, spreading theocracy, um, you know, there are, there are some disagreements in the details and some pretty big ones about what that theocracy is going to look like. And I think that, you know, with Pakistan and Iran, there are particularly interesting um, uh, things to watch where they have a, a hot and cold relationship. Um, in fact, the, um, while they have, you know, some, you know, very important uh, shared um, goals and aims. Um, there has been an ongoing um, uh, series of skirmishes, especially along the border, um, between uh, radical groups 
um, out of Pakistan that go into um, Iran um, to carry out attacks and then um, you know, a border guard retaliation um, inside Pakistan. And it's important to remember Pakistan in particular has really been rocked um, in recent decades uh, by sectarian violence. So, you know, there is not a sort of uniformity of, you know, when we talk about, um, uh, you know, radical Islam, there are many different forms of radical Islam. And um, one of these in Pakistan in particular, um, though certainly not unique to that, is an anti-Shia um, uh, a strain. Um, and then the, uh, I'm sorry, the oh, China. Um, you know, China, again, is another sort of wild card. Um, uh, and I say that because China has, um, China tends to operate um, behind the scenes a lot more, um, which Pakistan and other countries uh, like Pakistan like because they don't get embarrassed on the world stage. Um, but, and, and, and China is also uninterested in human rights in the way that the United States and, and the United Kingdom, the EU are. Um, so China will overlook a lot of things um, as long as they're getting their um, economic development programs in, um, you know, they're willing to really kind of look the other way about a lot of human rights stuff. Now, where the wild card bit comes in is that China does not have a lot of patience with radical violent extremism when it comes to China. Um, and, you know, we have seen uh, a few times uh, recently, in fact, um, within the past couple of weeks, there was a rare occurrence of Chinese um, uh, state-backed uh, voices threatening Pakistan and saying, look, if you can't clean up the violent extremist situation on our border, we're going to come in there and do it ourselves. Um, so I think that those conversations um, are being had. Again, they're being had behind the scenes. China is not interested in a global caliphate. Um, so I think that that, that is uh, something to pay attention to. This kind of feeds into another question that David uh, in the audience was asking. He was saying that the ethnic differences between Sunni and Shia and other um, sort of ethnic and national differences um, make pan-Islamic thinking difficult, um, obviously, when, it, when the rubber meets the road. Um, how do you see that playing out in South Asia and in um, and the Middle East in general? I mean, you sort of touched on that when you talked about Iran and Pakistan, but is there a sort of a wider issue of how this breaks down in the world and in South Asia? Um, I, you know, I think in the, the wider world, um, we tend to see what, um, what are high level cooperations. Um, and that's because there are, you know, basically you have the enemy of my enemy is, a, is my friend type, type thinking. And so it's, look, you know, we're all together against the West, right? Um, but once that sort of breaks away, then you see where things start to break down and become uh, more schismatic. You know, the, in um, the Islamic extremist narrative, um, there's a lot of talk, they reference the Ummah, which is the, the, the global community of Muslims. Um, and it's an interesting idea um, you know, it's, it's rather like talking about Christendom, right? And we can talk about Christendom as like this sort of global community of Christians. Um, but we also recognize that, you know, there's not, there's certainly unlikely to be any time in, in uh, the future, um, 
a workable, you know, uh, sort of global Christian theocracy. It did just like it hasn't worked in the past. In the 14th century, there were two popes for a, for a period. Um, and, you know, as things, as things um, break into sex, we see that more. So, and Pakistan is, is I think, a particularly good um, uh, opportunity to look at what that looks like. Um, you mentioned Jamaat Islami earlier. Jamaat Islami is a, a transnational, it's a global um, a radical Islamist organization whose goal is to establish an Islamic theocracy um, of their imagining, right? Um, but the way that they operate in different countries is um, tells you a little bit about what the political situations in those countries are. Because in um, India, um, they are they, much more moderate in their actions, um, but they don't have a lot of room to, to move. So they, they operate with as much space as they're given. In Bangladesh, they have a little bit more um, space, um, although the, the Awami League government that's currently in power um, has really made a priority of breaking up that, breaking up their power, Jamaat Islami's power and influence in that country. In Pakistan, they really have free reign. Um, there are really no restraints on their ability to evangelize, to organize, um, and as I mentioned before, to operate as an on-ramp, to bring people in, to identify where they could be useful in this sort of broader um, uh, radical movement, and then shift them over into these organizations. Um, so, you know, I, the idea of a, a single, you know, Islamic global caliphate is, you know, theoretically unworkable. Um, there's just not enough, um, you know, coherence in ideology. But as long as there is a sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend, we can set aside our differences as long as we're, you know, operating against the United States or, or you know, Europe, um, we're going to see those cooperations. And then as they gain power in these regions, you know, or in these, you know, more localized areas, um, you're going to see more of these violent skirmishes break out that are interesting warfare. Well, we're running out of time, but just but can answer in one minute. Um, you mentioned that Hindu Zionism, or at least the word used, was being demonized by Islamists. And I think you're talking about sort of the Hindus and the Zionists working together um, is sort of their, sort of this, you know, bigger ideology. But can you expound a little bit on what you mean by that? Sure. Well, so this is a phrase that's sort of bandied about usually by um, radical um, conspiracy theorists. Um, and, and, and it's this idea that, you know, first of all, there are, um, uh, there is a, a broad sort of belief in a global Jewish conspiracy, right? Um, and um, in the effort to demonize India in particular um, and to um, spread that demonization beyond the uh, kind of localized Pakistan-India fight, um, they really latch on to any way to sort of tie India, make a connection between India and Israel to sort of loop India into this, this supposed you know, uh, global Jewish conspiracy um, in order to make their fight against India relevant to, um, you know, radical Islamists outside of South Asia, in the Middle East in particular. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that uh, you can certainly see that in the United States with the various Islamist franchises 
from both the Middle East and South Asia. They're increasingly not only working together, but they're demonizing both Israel and India in the same language. Uh, anyhow, uh, wish we had more time. This has been great. Um, I appreciate you coming on to talk to us. And I think we're going to see a lot more interesting things happening in the region. And maybe sometime we'll talk about them again. But uh, thank you again very much for coming on. Thank you, audience, for joining us here. And uh, have a good day. Have a good day. Absolutely. Weekend. Thank you so much, Cliff.